this morning, um, we're going to be looking at three verses. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 15. So Galatians 5, 13 through 15. Well, there is, a, there is a time and a place for everything under heaven. In his sermon, the preacher in Ecclesiastes says that there is a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, and a time to heal, a time to break down, and a time to build up. Last year, the city of Sheboygan moved to have the iconic Armory and Municipal Auditorium demolished. If you've been down to the marina, you've passed it. It's a gaping hole. Uh, that building had stood there in front of the lake uh, for 80 years. And despite its prominence, it fell into disrepair and, and it simply remained. All, the only thing that could be done, unfortunately, was to tear it down so that the land could be used for something else. I've only been in Sheboygan for two years now, uh, two and a half years, but it didn't take being a local to realize that there's this ginormous crater there, uh, this hole uh, that was opened up by the destruction of this building. And now the question remains, with the demolition of the building, uh, what are they going to do with it? And that's, that's the, and, I, and I, I looked everywhere, I couldn't find any answers, so stay tuned. Um, but the point is this, that the time for the destruction is at an end, and the time for rebuilding has come. Now, most of the book of Galatians feels like demolition work. That's because Paul wrote this letter originally to a group of churches in the region of, Gal uh, of Galatia to combat a dangerous lie which had crept in there. It's a letter that lands like a wrecking ball on a false gospel that says that we have to earn our place in the kingdom of God through our own efforts. Paul's words in this letter are, are rather sharp. Uh, they're sharp like a machete chopping away at poisonous vines that were entangling these churches. His desire in writing this letter was not to be combative. It wasn't to defend his turf. Rather, it was to see people he loved live in the freedom of Christ. And so even as he fires these bold words against those who were trying to lead the churches back into bondage under the Mosaic Covenant commands, he also took steps to restore these churches and to set them on a road for rebuilding. At this point in the letter, uh, Paul is pretty much done with arguing against the case that these false teachers were making for their distorted view of the gospel. As we read last week, Paul says he is confident in the Lord that when these churches uh, read what he has written, that they will take no other view, but will return to the gospel of grace that which they first received from him, and that they will resume again obedience to the truth, uh, that they will see that no one is made righteous through works of the law or through works through their own human effort, but will entrust themselves fully to the grace of God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. The time has come to rebuild. And so for the rest of this letter, Paul's words are aimed at reminding these churches what it means to live in the freedom which Christ has secured for his people through the power of his death and resurrection. This closing section is instruction uh, for how those who have trusted in this gospel of grace are called to live. And so these words are immensely instructive for you and for me. 
This is how the church is supposed to live and thrive together as one in the gospel of grace as we await the return of our victorious Lord. Uh, This is a a reminder of how we are to live as a people who have been set free from the tyranny of sin and the tyranny of the flesh to live in liberty under the reign and rule of King Jesus. So let's begin by reading and considering God's word to the Galatian churches. Uh, If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll be reading from chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. This is the word of the Lord. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Thank you. Please be seated. Now, a rebuilding project has to be done in stages. Every project has to start with its foundation. The foundation of the Christian life and the life of the church is the grace of God manifesting itself in the freedom of the saints to live as God has intended for us to live, free from sin filled with the knowledge of him, following after the pattern of Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us on the cross and in his resurrection. Paul is pretty much done, as I've mentioned, with the polemical arguments that he's made against these false teachers who were troubling the churches in Galatia in an effort to lead them away from the truth into old ways of slavery under the law. Now he's instructing now now at this point he's instructing these believers these churches in how to live in the new age of Christ as citizens of the kingdom of God. Now Paul's focus in these verses in particular uh, and then on into the rest of the letter is on the freedom that believers have in Christ and on the way we're meant to live in that freedom as Christ's own subjects. In demonstrating that Jesus has set us free Through his work on the cross, Paul wants to guard against the idea that we can just live however we want to live, according to a fallen notion of freedom that is really self-serving. True freedom is lived under the reign and the rule of Christ, for Christ, Christ and according to the law of divine love, which leads us to consider the main idea of our text this morning. Christian, you have been called to freedom. You have been called to freedom, so serve one another in love. You have been called to freedom, so serve one another in love. I have three points for you this morning, all having to do with Christian freedom and how it impacts the way we live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ. So first, we were going to look at freedom's call, freedom's call. Second, we'll look at freedom's service, freedom's service. And finally, we will look at freedom's enemy. Freedom's enemy. Well, first we want to look at freedom's call. I have a question for you in this. Are you the kind of person who typically bristles at authority? Search your souls. Are you the kind of person that bristles at authority? Are you naturally skeptical of those who have been appointed to be an authority over you? Why is that? Now, when I find myself 
struggling to trust an authority, it's usually because I'm skeptical uh, of a couple things. That Maybe I'm skeptical that they don't have my best in mind, but they have reasons for using me. So I'm, I don't, I'm bristle at their authority. Or maybe it's because I feel that they are infringing on my rightful freedom. Therefore, I bristle at their authority. Or maybe it's because I do not believe they actually can deliver the promises they are making. And so I bristle when they try to assert their authority. Maybe you can relate to those reasons. I've noticed that people tend to, use, to import those same skepticisms about authority in their life into what they think about God. We tend to view God and his authority in the same way that we view other authorities in our lives. But that really is the wrong way of going about things, isn't it? God, in his perfection and in his holiness, is in a category all to himself. We may be rightfully skeptical about the motives and the actions of some authorities, but God is above reproach, and he deserves our trust because of that. As our creator, God has the right to rule over us. He made us. He sustains us. His commands are always good and right. There are eternal and just consequences for disobeying his commands, for objecting to his authority. God is not only rightfully sovereign, he's also maximally good. We think of good typically as a category, as a quality or or a standard by which we judge things. This is good cheese. Uh, This is a good sermon. This is a good way to live. When I say that God is maximally good, I do not mean that he is good in the sense that he fits into a category of goodness. What I mean is that God himself is the standard by which all goodness is measured. There is a, a purity to God, a goodness to him, which is eternal. He is above scrutiny. God is not defined by goodness. Goodness is defined by him. He is holy. He is righteous. His judgments are always just. It's what they should be. There is no blemish in God, no shadow in him due to change. His ways are the ways of life, of order, and of joy. Sin is a violation of God's goodness, and it is an objection to his sovereignty. Sin is rebellion against God. It is insurrection. It is an act of hatred. It is a desire to rule over our lives, uh, that which manifests itself in passions which are disordered and which are evil. We, we sin because we think we can be happier if we just go our own way. That is what drove, when you read uh, Genesis 3, you see that that is what drove Adam and Eve to violate God's one command in the Garden of Eden. And we are inheritors of that sinful nature. God, though, in his mercy and grace, has further displayed his goodness and his love to us in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God means for us to be free, free from the tyranny of sin, free to live the way he created us to live, free to live maximally in him. We know this because of what Paul says here in verse 13. 
That's similar to what we read a few weeks ago when we were looking at verse 1. Paul reminds us that true freedom begins with an effective divine call. Your freedom is a divine priority. God wants you to be truly free, free to live in the way he intended you to do as a wise and good creator. He wants his creation to live to the maximum of what potential of what he created to do. He made you in his image to be a reflection of his own goodness and glory. And even though we have all sinned against him, and even though we have all fallen short of his standard of holiness and of glory, he has manifest a steadfast love towards us. He has demonstrated that love in many ways. He demonstrates that through his long-suffering patience towards the world. He demonstrates that through his ongoing work of sustaining the world. He does that through the way that he gave his commandments in the law. He showed his love in making his power known in the created world. But the greatest way God has shown us his love is that he sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, into the world as a man to live a perfect life, to die on a cross as a perfect sacrifice, to become sin, though he himself had never sinned, and then to rise again from the dead, thus fulfilling all righteousness for us, and thus securing a freedom for all who believe in him to live as sons and daughters in the glory of his eternal kingdom. That is the gospel. And that is why we are here this morning, because we believe this. And because we have come to know through faith the God who loves us and sent his son. In verse 1 of this chapter, Paul said, For freedom, Christ has made us free. Meaning that this freedom is something which is secured for us by the objective work of Christ. Now, here in verse 13, he indicates that we are free because of the way that God has called us to himself. In our time in the book of Galatians, we've seen the significance of God's work in calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. God was the one who called the Galatian churches out of the darkness of tyranny under sin into freedom and joy that comes with a a right relationship with him. And he calls each one of you to that same freedom under the rule and the reign of Jesus, whom he has exalted as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, to be adored and to be worshipped forevermore. God's priority of freedom is a stunning display of his goodness and his grace towards the world. But that freedom is only for those who hear that gospel call and set their faith on Christ's work for them. John 1, verses 11 through 13 say that Jesus came to his own people, but they did not receive him. They rejected him. They rejected the freedom that he came to bring. They chose to live in submission to their own passions and their own pleasures and their own kingships instead of the true king. But John explains that to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The call to believe the gospel, 
The call to receive the freedom of Christ is a command that goes out to every man, woman, boy, and girl in all the world. It is a call which you have heard even this morning from this podium. Believe the gospel and be free. That is freedom's call. Understand that without Christ as your king, you are in a state of war against God and that you cannot receive freedom from the tyranny of sin unless you trust in what he has done for you exclusively. So hear the call, repent, and believe. Now, I'm well aware most of us are believers, and yet we need to hear that gospel call each day because trusting the gospel is a daily action, setting our hope and our seal to Christ, growing in maturity to him. As those who have heard that call, we also must consider a second part of freedom, which Paul lays out here and how to live in that freedom, which is freedom's service. So our second point this morning is freedom's service. Now, the members of the Galatian churches had heard the gospel of grace. They had believed it. They were heirs of that. They were heirs of the freedom of Christ. So Paul's concern here shifts from reminding them of what Christ has secured for them to reminding them the way they're supposed to live, the way they're supposed to live as a free people. His concern is for how they use that freedom. The freedom of Christ is not merely independence. It is freedom to live the way we were meant to live under the authority of Christ as citizens of his kingdom. This is where we really get into the main concern of our passage, how to live as a free people in Christ. And Paul says two things here about the way that we're called to live in the freedom which Christ has secured for us. Uh, first, he says that since we've been called to freedom, we must, n- we must not use that freedom as an opportunity to, sub- to submit to the old ways of living under the tyranny of sinful desires and passions. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Now, that's a little bit of a weird way to state things. The flesh, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with Paul at all, if, you, if you've read very much of his writing, you know that the flesh is pretty much Paul's favorite way of describing who we are apart from Christ. The flesh hates God. The flesh loves the self. It's that part of us that makes us want to live uh, under a different authority than the rightful authority of God. It's that voice inside that tells us to be skeptical about God and to be skeptical about his authority, to question whether or not he's actually good and whether or not he actually wants what's best for me. The flesh is opposed to God's rule. It strives after its own definition of goodness. It demands that God accept us on our terms, not his. Jesus came to set us free, specifically from the flesh. He came to repair and to elevate what Adam broke. As we read in 1 Corinthians 15, For in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Jesus secured that life that we need for us through radical obedience to the will of his Father. And it's through that obedience that we ourselves are set free by faith in him. When Christ sets us free, he brings us out from the bondage to sin and to the flesh, and he brings us into the freedom of his service. He gives us new desires. He gives us new identities. He gives us true significance. He gives us new priorities, which are shaped according to the priorities of his kingdom and his glory. 
Jesus was crucified for sin. And when we trust in him, we are joined to him in a unique and mysterious way so that in his death, we, in a real sense, die with him. Remember what Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. If we have died to sin and to the demands of the law, then it follows that we must not live according to those old ways of slavery, but that we must live in the freedom of Christ by faith in Christ. Jesus has not set us free from sin and bondage and sinful desires and from the condemnation of the law so that we can just go on and continue living in those old ways. He has not given us freedom that we just go on and serve old masters who are opposed to him. He sets us free so that we may live in that freedom. And so that's why Paul says, give no opportunity to the flesh. In his pastoral wisdom, I think he knew that there were going to be people who read these words in the Galatian churches who upon hearing Paul's arguments for their freedom were, were, were excited and they were just going to take things way too far who were going to be tempted to presume on the grace of God, who would use that grace as a, as a seal of approval to say, I can do whatever I want to do. Paul's word to the churches is to live as a free people, first reminding them not to submit to the sin which once enslaved them, but rather to use their freedom for the glory of Christ and for the cause of his, his kingdom, which is, brings us to the second thing Paul has to say about what we're called to do as we live as a free people. second thing he says is that we have, since we have been called to freedom, not only are we not supposed to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but that we are rather to live through love as we are called to serve one another. Now, to you and me, I think freedom and service seem like opposite things, don't they? So it might surprise you to hear Paul saying to, uh, that Christians are called to freedom, but they're called to use that freedom in service, and specifically in the service of love. Now, I think this is the difference between the caricature of freedom which the flesh promises and the true freedom which Christ has secured for us. True freedom manifests itself in the service of others because true freedom delights in obedience to Jesus. True freedom follows the pattern of Christ, who though he is God, took on a human nature and being born in this world as a man, lived his life in perfect obedience according to the will of the Father, even to the point of dying on a cross for the sins of his people. Now, as I've mentioned earlier, tomorrow is Memorial Day, a day when we solemnly remember that freedom is not free. We celebrate on that day the memory of those who gave their lives for freedom, who paid the ultimate price to preserve the liberty of our nation. And Jesus has secured an even greater freedom for us at the cost of his own blood. He has secured for us an eternal covenant and an eternal freedom that will never pass away. A freedom that can't be nickeled and dimed. A freedom that's not taxed. A freedom from slavery to sin and the flesh. A freedom of joy in God to live the way that he, we were supposed to live in the first place. Jesus liberates us from a selfish heart. And he calls us to live out that freedom 
by dedicating ourselves to serving others in love. In John 15, verse 12, he says to his disciples, This is my commandment. This is what Jesus wants you to do. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask in the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I have commanded you, so that you will love one another. This is a freedom that is radically different than what you'll hear on the streets today. It is a freedom that comes from God's own love and God's own heart, which compels us to live maximally, finding joy in freedom to serve God and to serve others. This is a love and a freedom that gives your life purpose. The freedom of Christ has been given to you so that you may fulfill love's command. That command is to count others as more significant than yourself, embracing the very pattern of Christ's life for your own. The model of true love and true freedom is the pattern of self-denying service, finding joy in the cross that Jesus calls us to take up as his disciples, choosing to leverage our freedom, which he gave us, for the advantage of others. Jesus has secured an authentic freedom for his people, a freedom that we live out under his reign according to his commands. Uh, true freedom is not lawless, and it's important for us to remember because trying to leverage the freedom of Christ in a way that serves our own priorities and our own desires, that is the way of the flesh. We avoid giving opportunity to the flesh by dedicating ourselves to live in the freedom of Christ according to the rule of Christ. In verse 14, Paul describes the way that believers are called to live out the freedom of Christ through loving service to others. He says, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Given all that Paul has said in this letter about how we have been rescued by Christ from, the, from, the, from, from being under the guardianship of the law and the condemnation of the law. It's really kind of surprising to hear Paul quoting the law to talk about the fulfillment of the law. It's even more surprising to hear Paul, uh, to read Paul saying that the whole law is fulfilled in loving our neighbor as ourselves. But this is important if we're to understand the way that believers are supposed to live in the freedom of Christ. So we need to get this right. We need to understand what he's trying to say. What Paul is describing here is the way that we live by faith in the freedom of Christ according to the rule of Christ. So he's not contradicting himself when what he said earlier in verse 3 when he talks about an obligation to keep the law. That is something we know we cannot do. The key word here, the place where, um, where obligation to the rule of law is different than the freedom we have in Christ is in this little word, fulfilled. Jesus and the commands of the law are not at odds with each other. In Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, 
but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He said those words just before he explained to the people who were listening to him that obedience required, that the obedience God requires is not just a matter of right action, but a matter of a right heart. Apart from the freedom of Christ, then, it is impossible to fulfill the law because, as the Bible tells us, we have all sinned and because we all have selfish hearts. Jesus fulfilled the law through his perfect obedience. His merit is credited to us by faith, and he gives us a freedom to love one another, thus fulfilling the aim of the law. Before a watch can keep time the way it's supposed to, its pieces must all be in the right place, and it must be powered up. So also the service that we are called to show our neighbor must spring forth out of a heart that has been set free by Christ, that has been rightly ordered by him, and it must be motivated by a spirit-filled love of and for God. In, John, in 1 John 4, 18-21, we are told that there is no fear in love, but that perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then John tells us this, we love because God first loved us. Therefore, we cannot say that we love God and hate our brother because whoever hates his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, John says, that whoever loves God must also love his brother. So it's a bit puzzling as you read Paul here that he leaves out what Jesus calls the greatest command, to love God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength, with all that we are, with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Sorry. His purpose in doing that, though, I think is best explained when we understand that the love for others, which God has, us to, has called us to, is meant to come first from a heart that loves God. And that if we do not love our brother the way Christ has loved us, we cannot claim to know God or to love him. The freedom which Christ has secured for us is a freedom to love God and to love others with a heart that has been purified by his work for us. The fulfillment of the law is not a matter of outward righteous acts or of rites or of observances of religious dates and holidays the way these false teachers were saying it was. No, the fulfillment of the law comes down to love faith, and freedom in Jesus, who came himself to fulfill the law and to rescue us from the sin that condemns us. It's almost as if at the end of this letter, Paul is saying, if you really want to keep the commands of the law, if you want to be zealous for the will of God, you won't do it by trying to be circumcised. You will do it by loving your neighbor in the freedom which Jesus secured for you. Love is the way of freedom and freedom is the way of faith in the gospel of grace. That brings us now to consider freedom's enemy. Our third point. Selfishness is not the way of freedom. Selfishness is not the way of freedom. When we are selfish, when we place ourselves first, we will be at odds with one another. 
Selfishness is the enemy of freedom. When the 13 American colonies were declaring independence from British rule, Benjamin Franklin famously and wittily remarked to the assembly of the representatives, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. And what he meant is that if all the representatives who were signing this declaration, this united statement of independence, did not stick together, then the cause of freedom would fail, and it would be the gallows for every man who signed that document. In verse 15, Paul calls the Galatians to renounce selfish priorities. He says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Now, we can expect, given how severe the situation going on in these churches was, that tensions were undoubtedly high. There was tremendous pressure being put on these churches and the members that were there. Uh, the stressful situations have a way of bringing the very worst out in us, don't they? If, church, if the churches in Galatia were going to withstand the temptation of listening to these false teachers, then they had to do it together. Backbiting and fighting would only make them weak. Satan loves to disrupt peace and order. He loves to set us at odds with one another. And he, appeal, he does that by, specifically by appealing to our pride and our selfishness. Truth matters. Truth matters. But so does the way that we wield the truth. I, ha I have to believe in this situation that there were members of these churches who had remained faithful to the gospel of grace, who had remained faithful to the truth, even while others had found this other gospel, this distortion of the gospel, appealing. And they were most certainly at odds with one another. So in reminding the Galatian believers about their freedom in Christ, Paul also reminds them that they are to practice humility and selfless service towards each other. A zeal for the truth must be tempered by a zeal for selfless love. Paul uses some pretty vivid imagery to warn the Galatian believers not to be at war with each other. Uh, what he describes here, it sounds like a couple of tigers going after each other, just fighting tooth and nail, locked in a fight to the death. He, he says, if you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by each other. Paul is not actually saying that the Galatians were biting each other. I hope you noticed that. But he does do a pretty thorough job of describing how people, and especially Christians in a church, can be at each other's throats over disagreement. What Paul means is that we must never compromise the truth, but neither should we treat the truth as a sword which we swing and thrust at each other. All too often, I think we let our own identities, our own reputations, our own desire to be known as a defender of the truth fuel the way we view the truth and its potential to make a name for ourselves rather than treating the truth as something that we are meant to use for the well-being of our brothers and our sisters. We get our own identity, our own fame conflated with the truth. And so even if it is proved that we are wrong, we won't submit because we are going to win this and my reputation, my name is on the line. We can start to see our brothers and our sisters, men and women for whom Christ died as our enemies. And I ask you, how many churches have been ripped apart not necessarily for the sake of truth, but for the sake of pride and appearance of being truth. The sword of God's word is not given to you to kill your brother. 
It is given to you to make your brother whole. Yes, we should rebuke error, and sometimes strong words are needed. The book of Galatians has some of the strongest words in the Bible. But, like the cross, strong words are not the end of the matter. Our goal in accountability isn't to be right. It's to see people live in the freedom which Christ has purchased for them. Our goal is love. We may be right on a matter. You may be impeccably right on some issue. But if we use our rightness to commit acts of fleshly pride rather than works of godly love, then we are not obeying Christ's command. The Christ church is not a fight club. It's a place for healing. It's a place for truth. It's a place for selfless love. And above all, it is a place for humility. At the end of the day, the freedom of Christ compels us to love each other the way he loved us because he loved us. We are called to this freedom as products of his grace, as a result of his initiative, because of what he has done for us. So if we bite and we devour one another, we are not fulfilling the law of love. Truth and love are the two great guardians of the church. You cannot have one without the other. If we use the the truth as an excuse to wound one another, then we actually show that we are more in touch and that we value more our selfish desires than we do the freedom which Christ has come to have us, has, has willed for us to have. And then if we use love as an excuse to compromise the truth, we show that we've grown out of the true definition of the freedom which God has called us to do. So we must hold these two things together as equal priorities. Now when it comes to actually putting what Paul says here into practice, I think it comes down to asking ourselves two questions. Two questions we should always ask ourselves before we act. The first is this. Do I trust that the truth of the gospel of grace is able to work in the heart of the person I'm talking to? Or am I really convinced that it's up to me to make that change happen? Do you trust the truth of the gospel to accomplish the change God wants in someone's life. Do you trust it? Or do you really just still trust yourself and your ability to handle the truth? There's a big difference. The second question we must ask ourselves is this. Am I more concerned with being right than I am concerned that I am with building up the person whom I'm speaking to in truth and love? As one scholar wisely observes, if we shout and we yell to win arguments, we are not secure in the gospel. We have to prove that we are right. But if we live by grace, we can firmly state the truth and even restate it if necessary and leave the results to God. It takes faith to trust God. It takes faith to trust God to give us the right words to speak and then to take those words which we speak and to make them effective. It feels good to be right.